All right, what's up, Discovery? All right, okay. Daryl, nothing? Hey, Daryl. All right. Hey, uh, my name is Tom Nelson. I have the, uh, the privilege of, of sharing with you guys today. Uh, I'm on the teaching team here at Discovery. And uh, I also serve on the campus with the Navigators, ministering to students over there. We've been here. We're entering our fourth year uh, doing ministry there. Um, more than those things, uh, I love the Lord. I'm a Christian. I love his word. Uh, I'm also a, a husband and a father. And, you know, I think the MO when we have come here in the past is that the speaker will get up, he'll share a few words about himself, and then he'll, he'll share a, a highly edited kind of glossy picture of him and his family. And I'm going to kind of flip the script a little bit and introduce you to my family, kind of a more realistic picture of, of how kind of a day in our life actually looks. So here's my son. This is Micah. Uh, this was the face he made when he stayed home from school to, throughout the day, uh, justify his staying home from school with a sore throat. Uh, next up is my wife, Nicole. Uh, that is um, the look that is kind of a mixture of... Um, uh, 50% are, are you kidding me with this right now? Slash, you are such an idiot. Uh, it's the sort of face I see daily. And um, yeah, sweetie, that's the one, okay. Uh, and then we have my daughter, Ellie, who just was not having it at all in that moment. Uh, and then there's me, okay. So that's my family. Um, <laughs> You know, we, uh, we've, actually been, we've actually been out of town for most of the summer ministering to students in Southern California, and so we've missed most of this ACT series, and so we're kind of coming in on the end. Again, like I said, I'm really excited to be here uh, teaching with you today. We do have Bibles available. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible or you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles available on those communion tables uh, kind of near the center of the rows. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. I'm sure someone will get up and, and give it to you. It is our gift to you. Uh, please, if you don't have a Bible, take it home, make it yours, open it up, spend a lot of time reading it, enjoying it, devouring it. I've, uh, I've titled the talk for today, Finding Our Voice. Finding Our Voice. And honestly, you guys, we have so much ground to cover today. Uh, so we're going to start the only way we know how we are going to pray. God, thank you. Today, this day is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, I, I pray that your word would come alive to us, that there would be a way that corporately and individually you are speaking to us. Lord, your spirit is teaching us, convicting us, equipping us for ministry. So, Lord, as I speak, Lord, would you teach? Would you receive all the glory and all the honor today? Amen. All right, let's bring ourselves up to speed. Where, where are we at? We're going to be reading in Acts 17 today. And just for some context, uh, Acts 17 falls in Paul's second missionary journey. Okay, so, so in Acts 13 and 14, Paul goes out with Barnabas and visits and plants a number of churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey, and after returning to Antioch, the early church's mission sending center, he gets sent out again, this time with Silas in the beginning of Acts 16. And they go and they revisit a number of the churches that Paul and Barnabas had, had planted during the first missionary journey, okay? And then they continue west, 
and they go up that top red dot there is Philippi. They move into Europe. They move into specifically the city of Philippi. And two weeks ago, Jeremy spoke about Paul and Silas being imprisoned in Philippi and that great story about suffering. What do we do with our pain? How do we reconcile that with the scriptures? Okay, And not long after that, they leave Philippi. They move a little bit south to that dot right below it to Thessalonica. Now they are in Greece. And in Thessalonica, they face a lot of persecution. This is the beginning of Acts 17. So much persecution, in fact, that they actually leave Thessalonica pretty quickly and move next door to Berea, where the people are far more receptive. And in fact, it says that the people in Berea receive the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. But like so many times, trouble seemed to follow Paul And not long after being in Berea, a group of Jews from Thessalonica followed him and forced him out of town. And so Paul goes all the way south down to Athens. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. Our text for today is Acts 17, verses 15 to 34. And as I often do when I preach, I want to to tip my hand early to tell you what I hope it is that you walk away with today. Okay? And it's this. I want you to walk away with a firm biblical conviction that God has intentionally and sovereignly placed you where you are so that you can communicate the good news of Jesus with both your words and your actions to the people around you. Okay? God has intentionally, sovereignly placed you where you are today whatever locale or context you find yourself in, so that you would minister the gospel, you would share, proclaim, serve, show the good news of Jesus to those around you with both your words and your actions. And and since we're starting with the end in mind, we're actually going to take a look at the end of the passage first to see the response to Paul's teaching and then kind of go back to the front end. First, uh, if you guys have your message notes, uh, sometimes they're really helpful. The first blank on your message notes is this. A biblical response to the message of Jesus. And we'll start reading in Acts 17, starting in verse 32. This is the Athenians. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, We'll look at the teaching of Paul in Athens, but I wanted to start with the response as a means and a way of, of, as Peter says, stirring you up by way of reminder. Okay? Some sneered. They heard of the resurrection from the dead, that Jesus was resurrected, and they sneered. A lot of sneering in our world today, right? Oh, you disagree with me? Sneer. Oh, you have a slightly different opinion? Sneer. For for some of the Athenians, the idea that a man, Jesus, fully man, fully divine, could be raised from the dead was completely untenable. They could not get it. That was obscene. That was absurd. They sneered. They were repelled. There were others, however, that said, hey, we will hear you again. 
They didn't wholeheartedly embrace this message, but they didn't outright reject it either. There was a sort of curiousness and intrigue that was stirred up in them as they heard Paul proclaim Jesus and the resurrection. And the third response we see is that some actually believed. A couple named individuals, Dionysus, Damaris, and others. They believed that what Jesus had done was for them, that there was nothing that they could have done on their own to restore themselves, to be reconciled to God, that Jesus dying and raising for them was what they most desperately need, and they said, we believe. Three biblical responses. Now, three responses we want? No. We don't want all three, but that does not make them unbiblical. And on your message notes, I've actually added a number of scriptures for these different points that if you, if, if you want to spend more time uh, studying, digging deeper into the word, run with those. Look at those cross-references. Take time this week to meditate on those scriptures. But what about you, Discovery, Christians? What are the responses that, that you have seen as you have communicated the gospel to those around you? Have you seen people be repelled? Have you seen people uh, had a a gospel curiosity, some intrigue, as you have, have, have told them about Jesus? Have you shared your story as you've shared this message of hope? Have you had the privilege of seeing someone, by God's grace, be drawn to him, not because of your own effort, but because of his grace for them? Have you had the privilege to see that? For some of you, the answer might be to all three, well, no. And, and I think if we're honest, a majority of us might even say, I, I actually haven't done anything to warrant any response. And, and if that's you, it's good that you're here. We come here to be equipped. We come here to be encouraged. We come here to be nurtured. For so long, that was my story as a young Christian in college. Those are the three biblical responses to the message of Jesus. All right, that's where we're going. Let's go back to the beginning. Acts 17, we're going to start. Verse 15. Now those who escorted Paul, remember he's going from uh, from Berea to Athens. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Paul arrives in Athens. In Athens, you guys, it was a very interesting city, different from other places that Paul had gone. Athens was a a place of higher learning, uh, a a mecca of intellectualism, a place where it birthed culture that expanded far beyond its boundaries. A place also where there was a a gross intellectual pride. An an idea that if you learned enough, you could could move towards perfection. If you knew enough, if you you studied enough, you could move to a place where you could procure for yourself a, a supremely secure and happy life. Sounds familiar, Davis, right? There's a reason we should pay attention to what Paul does in this place Check out what it says, verse 16. Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. That second bullet point on your notes says this. 
Learn to be conversant with your culture. Learn to be conversant with your culture, right? Acts 17, 16, it says that Paul was, what? He was observing the city. You get a sense that he shows up by himself, he's waiting for his buddies to come, and he's just taking it all in. He's observing the city full of idols. He's taking notes. He's seeing what the culture is. He's understanding what makes this place tick, right? He's a, he's a cultural detective. Later on, we'll read this in his sermon at the Areopagus, but in verse 23, he says, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. Verse 16, we see him observing. Verse 23, we see him examining. We get the sense that Paul comes into this new place and he's attentive to what people are whispering about. He's in tune with the, the feel, the environment, what people are giving themselves to. In verse 28, that same sermon we'll read, he says, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. And you might be thinking, why did you add this? He's not observing. He's not, he's not, uh, he's, he's not uh, examining. Well, here's the reason I added verse 28. is because in verse 28, he says, he says this. He actually quotes two ancient Greeks. Okay? That line, in him we live and move and have our being. He's actually quoting a 6th century B.C. philosopher, a Greek philosopher named Epimenides, right? When it says, and we are his children, he's quoting from a 3rd century B.C. poem by a Greek named Aratus. And for me, as I'm reading this, I think, how and why does a Jew born in Tarsus as a natural citizen of Rome know enough about ancient Greek culture that he would have the boldness to use their own language and their own history in order to turn Greeks away from their gods. I think it's because Paul understands and knows that the gospel is best heard when it's presented in our own language. The gospel is more readily understood when it's put in terms and in history and a vocabulary that we can actually relate to. So Paul observes, Paul examines, Paul does his homework. I think based on his observations, the way he preaches to the Athenians is far different than anywhere else in all his missionary journeys. He spent time being a cultural detective. For us, we should be doing the same thing. We should be doing the same thing as Christians. We have a responsibility to understand and to be involved in what's happening in our world. There are so many national dialogues that are now spinning out of places like Charlottesville. We need to be having developed, informed convictions about these things. We need to be in tune with what's happening in the news and the fallout that's happening uh, on the Texas Gulf Coast because of Hurricane Harvey. We need to be informed of these things. Personally, I, I spend uh, a little bit every night reading the news because I know as a Christian, I want to be informed. I want to know what's happening in my world. And I want to read broadly. I don't want to just go on Facebook and read my friend's expert political opinions. I don't want to go on Facebook or I don't want to go online and simply just read in this echo chamber of people that are constantly confirming my own presuppositions and biases and we can just pat ourselves. I want to read 
what other people have to say, people that I might not necessarily have the same starting point with. As Christians, we need to be conversant with our culture. For each of these last three points, I've given you three diagnostic questions that will kind of help you assess kind of where you're at in all this. And the diagnostic question for this is, do I intentionally pursue information, observe my culture, and have developing convictions about what's happening in my city, state, country, and world? Jim Elliott, the, uh, the missionary who was martyred at age 29 in Ecuador, he said this, wherever you are, be all there. If you live in Davis, be in Davis. Understand Davis. Understand the soil that you walk on. Understand the, 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 the trends and the values and the things that people are giving themselves to. If you live in Woodland, like me, understand Woodland. Understand your neighbors. Know what, what, what's being whispered amongst the people. If you have kids in the school district, be in the school district. If you live in the dorms, be all in the dorms. Be conversant with your culture. Next blank. Learn all about the people who are in that place. Learn to be conversant with your culture. Now learn all about the people who are in that place. We know from the beginning of Acts 17, when Paul came to Thessalonica, it says his custom was to go into the synagogue to preach to the Jews, and then he would spend time there. And this was pretty common for Paul, right? Paul, Paul would often spend time in, in a lot of places. In fact, right after Acts 17, in Acts 18, he goes to Corinth for the first time. And he spends a year and a half there. Not long after Corinth, he goes to Ephesus, and he spends three years there. And he goes there, I think, because he wants to get to know the place. It's not enough for him to show up, stand up on a soapbox, blast the message, and then leave. He actually gets a job in Ephesus, in, in Corinth. He spends time there to get to know the people. Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundary of their habitation. Scriptures say that God has appointed our time. God has appointed our place, intentionally, expertly. And the reality for us is that we don't get to live outside the context of relationships. We don't, we don't live among theoretical people. Your family, that's who you get. Your coworkers, that's who you get. Your classmates, you're stuck with them. The person sitting on your right or left, that's who you get. The life you're living now is the only one you get. You don't get to dictate or wait for people or places that are more congenial for you sharing the gospel. It won't happen. It will not happen. You're stuck with them, for better or worse. And yet those people around you who don't know the Lord, Paul gives us a really good reminder in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. 
I love this. We need this reminder because here Paul says, as an exercise of wisdom, you should be gracious towards everyone on the outside so that you will know how to individually respond to this person and this person. How can you know that without knowing them, without knowing their convictions, without knowing what makes them tick? If you have one tool that you use when you're talking to everybody, I think that's dangerous. I think Paul would have something to say about that. You know, if, if, if Rolly had some home improvement projects, and he said, hey, Tom, can you come help me? And I showed up, and I had my giant tool belt, and I said, let's do it, buddy. And he's like, where are your tools? And I said, well, I got my tool. I pulled my hammer. You know? That's going to be really hard to, uh, to turn the screws with that one tool. Right? We need to have a lot of tools in our tool belt so that when we encounter someone in the dorms, maybe who didn't grow up uh, in the church, we'll know how to speak to them. Versus a coworker who's been working at the job 30 years longer than you, who's never been to church but is interested, you might have a different tool for reaching that person. We should exercise wisdom. We should always be gracious, but we should always be attentive to the ways that we respond to each person. Diagnostic question. Am I informed and conversant about the things that are most important to the people around me? Whether it's the music they listen to, whether it's uh, the names of their kids, whether it's you know, their fantasy football league, whatever it is, you guys, do I, do I know what's making the people around me tick? Like I said, I live in Woodland. I've been there for over a year now. I, I'm ashamed. I, I don't know my neighbors that well. This is something I don't do well. I want to grow in it. I want to learn. But the reality is I haven't spent time to really get to know the people around me. Next bullet point. Graciously share the gospel with those people in that place. I, I've intentionally worded it this way. I, I know it's kind of a mouthful. Because we don't, we don't share the gospel with abstractions or with theoretical people or with cardboard caricatures of real people. We, we share with real named people who live in a real time, in a real place, with real backgrounds, real stories, who are both you know, um, equally wonderful and pathetic and scared and hopeful and um, proud and, and everything in between. Those are the people that we share with. We understand the culture, we understand the people, and now we learn how to share the gospel with those people in that real place. Acts 17, starting in verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue, this is Paul in Athens, with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? Graciously share the gospel with those people in that place. Where do we do this? Verse 17 says Paul was in the synagogue. The synagogue was the, the local religious center for the Jews. The synagogue represented the people Paul most readily identified with. As we said, this was his custom. This was where he went first. The people who he most readily identified with. And it says he was reasoning with them. Reasoning, Greek, dialegomai. 
Sounds familiar. We have this word dialogue, which has a similar root. Paul didn't go into the synagogue and just blast them with truth. The, 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 the idea is that there is a back and forth happening. There is some conversing. This is far more the idea of conversation rather than simply presentation. There's, there's a sense of mutual respect here in this idea that he would enter the synagogue and he would actually reason with them. So it's proclaimed in the religious center, right? Next, it says in verse 17, also, it was in the marketplace. This was the center of day-to-day activity in most ancient cities. This was where life happened. These were, people would have been relative strangers to Paul. These weren't the Jews. This was the Gentiles and the Jews going about their everyday life. And I want to emphasize that it says he was here in that place, not in the religious center. It says he was there when? Every day. Who is he conversing with? Those who happened to be present. If the gospel that is believed is only being proclaimed in the religious center in discovery and is not also being communicated in the marketplace, in the, in the places where life happens on Monday through Saturday, then the gospel believed, you guys, is not in part or in whole the gospel of Jesus. If the gospel we're celebrating in these walls only stays within these walls, what we're celebrating is not what Jesus wants us to celebrate. We cannot become an insular community where we just pat ourselves on the back and say, amen, brother, we're saved. If it doesn't translate to the marketplace, if it doesn't translate to Monday through Saturday, we are absolutely missing the point. Paul proclaimed in the synagogue, he proclaimed in the marketplace, it says here, he proclaimed in the Areopagus. The Areopagus, what a name, right? This was a a rocky outcropping in Athens that served as, uh, for the most part, a, a government judicial court where people were tried. It was also a place where intellectuals would gather to share ideas. And this is where Paul comes, and we actually have access to a lot of what he says here, which we'll read in a minute. Local religious center, marketplace, government public forum. The reality is we understand from this text that there was no place where people were not exempt from the need to be reconciled to God. There is no place that's safe. There's no place that's off limits where the love of God cannot break in. So what was Paul's message in those places? Back to Acts 17, 18. It says, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's all it says. That's all we know it says that he was doing in the marketplace. We understand that he was dialoguing in the synagogue. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection in the marketplace. And that word preaching, evangelizo in the Greek, means to proclaim verbally, auditory, out loud. He was proclaiming it to whoever might be passing by. And then in the Areopagus, we're going to read a kind of a summary of what he says here, starting in Acts 17, 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, 
since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the access that we have to Paul's words at the Areopagus to these Athenians. Again, he preaches based on his cultural observations. He says, I was observing, I was examining, I'm going to quote Epimenides, I'm going to quote Aratus. Do I have your ears yet? This is what he has to say. He preaches of a singular Sovereign, creative, generous, determinative, intentional God who desires to be sought and discovered. A discovery which is occasioned by repentance, belief. Because of a coming judgment by and through a man we know as Jesus, who was raised from the dead. He hits on so many of the elements of our gospel message in this passage. He talks about a sovereign God, a singular God who doesn't need us. This was so different than the Greeks' conception, the polytheistic conception of their gods, who were far more human in their emotions and their interactions and the way they thought these gods existed. God does not need us. Paul says, talks about, again, in the, in the marketplace, Jesus, he talks about Jesus' death as implied by his need for a resurrection. He talks about the resurrection. He talks about sin because of the implication by the need for repentance. He talks about repentance and he talks about a coming judgment. And we've already talked about the Athenian response at the beginning of this message. But what can we learn from this? Whenever I was a young Christian, I would hear someone preach about sharing the gospel, not just with my actions, but with my words. I would think, oh, well, that person, he, he loves the mission more than the mission giver. He, he loves doing things for God more than he loves God. And that is not the case. You read 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that essentially they would serve him. They would no longer live for themselves. Skipping forward to verse 20, he says, Therefore we, those who are the recipients of Jesus' death for us, we're ambassadors for Christ. We are his emissaries. We are his messengers. We are his representatives. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The love of Christ that controls us. It's not duty. It's not a sense of, oh, I, really, I gotta get busy about the mission. We do it in response to what we have seen from him. And as we see the glory and wonder and kindness of God, and we actually experience that in our hearts, and we realize that we have been brought from death to life because of no merit of our own, we get to turn around and be his ambassadors. 
And there's this great commission that Jesus lays out for his followers at the end of Matthew 28. You guys have heard it before. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives this to all of his disciples to go to make disciples. And I, I, I've, I've walked in circles. I've seen people who still, despite reading 2 Corinthians 5, they still elevate the Great Commission higher than it's supposed to be. They make the Great Commission their greatest good, and yet the Great Commission is not the only great in the Scriptures. Jesus says there's a great commandment. You read Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, and he says, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and and strength. And let me warn you, if you put the Great Commission ahead of the Great Commandment, you will look really good, people will pat you on the back, but you will do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. You have to keep the Great Commandment that God is the ultimate focus of our affection and everything we do in its proper place. And out of that, you are committed you respond to this great commission. And as you do that, you realize it is not also the great suggestion. The great commission is not the great suggestion. I became a believer in college. I was at Cal Poly, uh, San Luis Obispo. And is that Marissa? Probably. Yeah, okay. Um, and I became a Christian. And my thought was, hey, you know what? If I just become like the coolest Christian that's most, most relevant, hang out with my non-Christian friends, you know, adopt their language set, kind of spend a lot of time with them. I'm going to be so cool. They're going to be compelled to ask me, Tom, what makes you so different? And I, and I, I thought, man, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. I just, you know, um, it didn't happen. It just didn't happen, you guys. Theoretically, it should have happened. I was cool enough. It just never happened. No one actually saw how cool I was or how kind I was or, or how many acts of kindness I did. They never actually said, Tom, hey, we just noticed something different about you. I know you're a Christian. What, what is it about you? And I thought that was my evangelistic strategy. It never happened. D.L. Moody, a, a 19th century evangelist, he was giving a, a seminar once and he's sharing about how he, how he proclaims the gospel, how he shares the gospel with more than just his actions. And there was a woman in the audience who was getting kind of stirred up and agitated and she approached him after his message and she said, honestly, I, I just don't really like the way that you do that. To which Moody said, yeah, and, and I think in a very open-handed way, uh, yeah, I'm not wild about it either. He says, well, what do, what do you do? She said, well, I, I don't. I don't do that. And Moody's response was, well, I guess I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Boom. And I can relate to that because that was my story. You guys, the most effective evangelists are the ones that actually do it. Not, not surprising. <laughs> the most effective evangelists are the ones that do it. There's a number of mentalities when we think about being equipped for ministry, whether it's discipleship or evangelism. And I like to think of it in two ways, right? There's a difference between people who build an airplane on a runway versus people who build an airplane in the hangar. They're both building airplanes. 
But when you build it in the hangar, you can build it, you can test it, you can stress test it, you can make sure that after years of testing, this will fly because it's, 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 it hasn't been unveiled to the public, but we've been training for years, and now we know that when we open those hangar doors, this thing will work. Okay? On the other side, the people who build the airplane on the runway, they're still building a plane. They're using the same materials, but they realize, hey, this thing, we, we're going to make this thing fly. And I imagine they're still you know, putting bolts in the fuselage and, and hanging wings on the side of the thing as it's starting to take off. And the reality is, only one of those things actually does what the plane was built for. It is so easy for us to say, yeah, I understand the commands of God, but I just need to know a little bit more. I need to get a little bit more training. I need to be a little bit more equipped. I need to be a little bit more conversant with my culture. And yet the biblical command hasn't changed. Make disciples. 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. I think in some ways, Christians' discovery, we've spent a lot of time hanging out in the hangar. I think it's just time to get out there. Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And I think we hear often these words of Paul, and they think, yes, but, but that's the apostle Paul. I'm nothing like him. I've heard our students say this, to which I, I graciously and generously try to say, you're right. You are nothing like him. You have infinitely more resources, connections, and access to people than him. Also, you have the New Testament. Also, you're not in prison. <laughs> in many ways, you're not like him. However, you read some of his words in the scriptures. You read what he says in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 2. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Check out what he says in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. I can relate to that. We can relate to that. In Ephesians 6, I won't read it. He's simply, he's in prison. He's praying for boldness. He says, and pray also on my behalf. That I may make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. So that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is the same Paul. You know who prays for boldness? People who don't have it. I pray for boldness. I pray that we pray for boldness. We are not so unlike Paul. And the, the reality is, while there are ways we're not like him, there, are, there is a very fundamental way that we are. We have the same spirit. We have God's spirit within us if you are in Christ to will and to do the things that God desires in line with his priorities. God did not create 
a mission for his church. He created a church for his mission. And if we miss that, if we get those mixed up, we are going to be in a bad spot. We exist because of the broader mission of God that predated Pentecost, that predated the New Testament, that predated Paul, something that he has been working from all the way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham, who was justified by his faith, Genesis 15, 6. This was God's grand sovereign plan to redeem mankind. And in discovery, we exist and have been created because of that mission. The diagnostic question here, do the people around me have a clear sense of who Jesus is and what he's done because of both my words and actions towards them? Some application. I, I realize that uh, this might feel challenging, um, to which I say, good, amen. We need challenge, okay? Here's the thing. I, I think when I was trying to be so cool and so conversant with the culture, I, I thought that to ask someone about Jesus, to, to, to find a way in to tell them about the gospel, I just had to be so artful. I had to be so creative and just find the right words that just really appealed to them. And, and the reality is, what I have found as I've grown older, as, I've, as I slowly have learned in this area, it doesn't need to be that fancy. Here's some, here's some, here's some questions. I've asked people, do you know what Christians believe? You'd be surprised, the conversations that start because of that. Uh, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Have you ever heard of the gospel? It doesn't need to be hard. In regard to becoming conversant with our culture, start reading the news. Start, start practicing learning how to ask really good questions. Start learning, training yourself to listen and being slow to speak, as it says in James 1. There are so many ways to begin to verbally proclaim the scriptures. But again, the most effective evangelists are the ones that actually do it. And maybe, maybe you're sitting there and thinking, yeah, Tom, all those tips are about mechanics. I just don't have the desire. To which I'd say, you know what? If you're a Christian, that is, if you have been chosen by God, if you have been, as it says in Ephesians 1, the recipient of every spiritual blessing in Christ, it means that you have the spirit within you. And that spirit within you desires to do the things that God desires. And so if you don't have the desire, pray for the desire. Have that as a starting place. Have friends pray with you. And I guarantee as you start doing that, as you start becoming conversant with your culture and the people around you, you will start to see them as God sees them. If you can take away maybe the ways you stereotype them or ways you put them into this box or that box because of their theology or their convictions or political affiliation, if you can start seeing them for who they really are, my guess is God will instill in you a heart to see them reconciled to him. And as you do that, we present Christ. You know, John Calvin in his Institutes for Christian Religion, he says that the human heart is a factory for idols. Our default mode is to give ourselves to things that are beneath God. Our default mode is to, to align ourselves and trust ourselves, give ourselves to things that will ultimately destroy us, that can never possibly satisfy us. 
And as my friend Kevin, who's on staff with me at the Navigators, often says, he says, you know, there's, there's no sin that you're not capable of. There is no sin that you're not capable of. And it is in this state of choosing other things besides God, the Bible says that God came and he saved us. Romans 3.23 says that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own kindness towards us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were doing things that were displeasing to God, he came and he saved us. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. There's plenty more. Colossians 2, 13. The Bible is specific and painfully clear about this. It is when we did nothing to merit his favor, God brought us to himself. And in case we think that, oh, but maybe it's because I did this, or maybe because I, I was good enough, or because I was kind enough. The Bible spares no expense at slapping that lie out of the way. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 1 John 4.19, We love him because what? He first loved us. Even in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, by his doing, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And as we understand that, as we realize that he has brought us to himself apart from anything we might do, by his kindness, we get to repent. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that repentance is something that God grants to us. And the way we understand it and receive it is, it says in Romans 2.4, his kindness leads us to repentance. He grants us the ability to understand him, to receive his kindness, and it causes us to repent, to turn, to give ourselves to something else besides what we were. We turn from sin, we turn to God, and we repent, and it results in obedience. John Stott says, It would have been inconceivable to the apostles that anyone could believe in Jesus as Savior without submitting to him as Lord. We cannot chop this Jesus into bits and then only respond to the bits. When Paul's writing in Romans, he bookends the whole book in 1 and 16, and he says, the reason I'm writing this is to bring about the obedience of faith. The faith that you have is met with obedience. The Gospel of John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not, he doesn't say not believe, he who does not obey, the Son will not see life. Christians, I, I say all this and I, I give you a lot of scripture today, unapologetically. We need the word. But I do it to remind you, again, as it says in 2 Peter 1, to stir you up by way of reminder that you have been brought from death to life. You, apart from anything you did, have been given hope and freedom because of God's work in your life in sending Jesus to die for you and to raise for you and in so doing to make you an ambassador for him. So that as an ambassador, from the overflow of that loving kindness, remember 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of God controls us, we would reach out to those around us, those people who God has sovereignly and intentionally placed us next to. I realize that there are folks here who would say, actually, I'm, I'm not a Christian, and I've been in your shoes when I was younger for a long time. 
I would come here and think, what the heck are they talking about? I, I don't get it. There's an invitation for you. you know, Jesus, he, he said in, in Matthew 11 to the crowds, you know, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That sound good. Rest, rest for a soul. That's the invitation Jesus gives us. And John writes that, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Jesus spared no expense in coming for us, in dying for us. God raised him from the dead so that we could experience that new life in him, a renewed hope, a renewed security. And so if there, there are any in here who have never received that, if there are any in here who uh, maybe have heard some of this, maybe in part, maybe in whole, I want to invite you to consider Jesus. When people say the gospel, this is the gospel message. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, so that we might turn to him, we might call out for him, we might repent and choose not just to obey him as, 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 as Savior, but to obey him presently as Lord, to make him boss of our life. So I'm going to pray. The worship band's going to come back up. And if, if, you, if you make that decision, if you pray, there will be people over here in the prayer corner on the side of the, of the building here. They'd love to pray for you. If you have questions, ask them questions. Guys, this is too big of a deal to take lightly. Let's pray. God, thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for your word and Lord, for all the ways that you have brought us to this place on this day among, among these people. We, uh, I think we just need you, Lord. We, we don't really know <laughs> always what's good for us, and I think the things that we give ourselves to um, which is not good sometimes. And yet, Jesus, you are the greatest treasure that we could give ourselves to. And Lord, ask that um, as Christians who are in here, we'd be reminded of your faithfulness towards us and it would result in obedience. It would result in us opening our mouths with our friends, our coworkers, our classmates. And Lord, if there's some who maybe don't know you or wouldn't call themselves Christians, Lord, I pray that you would stir in their hearts a desire to please you, to know you, to forsake the things they've been giving themselves to to choose you, Lord, and, and to confess their sins before you and to humbly acknowledge their inability to save themselves. And Jesus, we love you. Help us to worship, uh, worship you appropriately right now. Amen.